1 Corinthians, and I didn't print the whole chapter on accident. Um, I'm going to read it, though, so just know that there's about three verses that are not present in your worship folder. We're in chapter 3, first first verse of chapter 2, but then through chapter 3. From the Apostle Paul, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants, he who plants, nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's workers, fellow workers. You are God's filled, God's building. According to the grace of the God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each of one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious metal, or precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on this foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved." but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. The word of the Lord. Lord, um, all is ours. All is ours, and we are yours, and God is Christ. Help us to understand this morning what that means. Help us to understand what it means to be, um, to have the mind of Jesus Christ, and for you to be the Lord of this church. Pour out your spirit upon us as your temple. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In this chapter, Paul continues... Uh, to address the issues of divisions in the body, and he returns in a pretty direct fashion 
Recall chapter one, where he gives us basically his, his main argument, his thesis. This is chapter one, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul names the divisions um, among the Corinthians in the very beginning, but then he seems to digress for two chapters to talk about the foolishness of the cross and the wisdom of the world and the nature of true spiritual knowledge and the work of the Spirit and the work of and the act of illumination. <clears throat> but to be clear, this is no digression of Paul's. Paul is doing some very deep application here of the cross to the Corinthians' way of thinking, which was the root of their divisions. Remember what I said earlier, that a divided church is a worldly church. A divided church is a worldly church. A church that is struggling with divisions is a worldly church. And the way you address that isn't simply to say, stop fighting with one another. The way that you address it is you apply the cross more deeply. And that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to expose our worldliness of our thinking, um, which is really at the root of the why we can't seem to, to get along. And the goal here is that we all might have the mind of Christ. That's the goal, that we all might have the mind of Christ. And so the only way that we overcome worldliness in our lives and in our thinking is through a deeper embrace of the cross. So that has been Paul's strategy. That's why he, he got intensely theological, and now he's pulling back a little bit and making some more direct applications. Now, the Corinthians perceive themselves to be a very spiritual congregation, to be a very mature congregation. They use words like, uh, you know, wise and mature. These are kind of like specific code words that, Paul, that, that they refer to themselves. But what Paul has been pointing out, especially in this chapter, and really from the beginning, is that they are very far, actually, from being mature. They are, in fact, the, the opposite of being mature. They are, they're like spiritual infants. That's how he describes them. But what's interesting here is that they are, they're also very spirit-obsessed. They talk all the time about the Holy Spirit. They talk all the time about their experience with God. And so Paul, in a way, as a great writer and, you know, communicator, he, he plays off of their zealousness for possessing the Spirit uh, by reminding them of the seriousness of what it means to actually be, to possess the Spirit. And so he says here in verse 16 of chapter 3, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that the God's Spirit dwells in you and that if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, when Paul says that you are God's temple, he is not, this is a plural, it's not a singular. <laughs> He's not saying you as individuals are a temple of God. What he's saying is he's saying y'all, all of you together, plural, are God's temple. All of you together are God's temple. And what he's doing, he's speaking of the community. All of you together gathered are a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not the church building. It's not the church programs. It's not the church's online presence or image in the community. It is you as a church community gathered in your life together and in your worship together and in your mission together. 
that is a holy temple. It is a sacred thing. It is a holy place. And this sacredness of that temple is evident in the warning that Paul affixes to this observation. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. He, of course, has in mind divisions in the church. And he he doesn't pull any punches, right? He doesn't mince any words. There's no way to soft pedal this. This is a very serious warning that ought to give all of us enormous pause. God will hold us accountable for the divisions that we create that lead to destruction of his temple. As modern people, there are few spaces and places in the world in which we have a sense that we are on holy ground or sacred ground. We don't really know what it means to stand on holy ground. And I think because of that lack of holy places, everything is mundane, um, we, we have a hard time appreciating what Paul is, the weightiness of this metaphor of the church as a temple of the Holy Spirit. For Paul, that means that it is a holy thing. It's something that, that, that deserves our special respect, that in it we ought to be cautious And there ought to be a seriousness about our presence because this temple, this holy community is set apart and precious to God. It means that there's something bigger and more immense in this community than just ourselves and our own interests. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul wants us to think about that sense of a holy place when we gather together as a community, whether it's on a Sunday morning like this, or whether it's in community groups or in meals together, Paul wants us to see that we're entering holy ground when we gather together to be a community. And we need to give that the same kind of respect and deference and caution and moral seriousness. And he's not saying, you know, every time you gather together, you got to dress up and, and be really somber. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that there's, there's weight, there's consequence, there's, there's something going on here. It's not like any other community. You have to treat it as it's holy. And that's why Paul gives this really severe warning to us about if we destroy God's temple, God will destroy us. And I'm not really sure what it means by that, whether it's just temporal or eternal, but it's something that we have to, to hear. And the reason why Paul is so severe here is because all the members of the body are loved by God. <laughs> all the members of the body are loved by God. They're precious to God. Jesus died for them. And so we need to treat this community and one another with holiness, with respect, and with love. So th- this is, I think, a really you know, um, important image of what it means to be a church that I think we need to reflect on and recover. And really the question here is, how do we, how do, we do that? How do we be this temple of the Holy Spirit? And Paul's main argument through this whole chapter has to do with maturity. What is, it, what is true maturity? And what are, how do you distinguish that from false versions of this? And the, to answer this question, how do we become the kind of community that corresponds to the reality of the Holy Spirit in our midst. The, the way we do that is by becoming mature, by growing up, 
So that's really what I want to focus on. What does it mean to be a spirit, a community of the spirit that is mature? What is the spirit of maturity in our midst? How do we live in the light of the fact that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Um, I think as Americans, our metrics for assessing and evaluating maturity and growth are, are very problematic, especially when we bring them into the church. Um, the American categories for maturity for us are, are uh, bigger, stronger, faster. You probably heard me use this as a documentary. Um, bigger, stronger, faster. Th- those are our categories when we think about growth and how we, are, we measure growth and metrics. We have an obsession as Americans with defying biological, political, social, you know, bodily limits on human nature that have been just kind of given in standards in most cultures. Um, to be an American is to be able to do it bigger, better, and stronger, and faster, right? Remember Operation Warp Speed? <laughs> I mean, even the way we describe the way we conquer this virus, warp speed, right? We're talking about rejuvenating the economy, right? Let's just pump billions of trillions of dollars. Like, we can do this, right? We just have enough money. If we have enough ingenuity, if we throw the right brains and firepower at it, there's nothing that we cannot do. Bigger, faster, stronger. That's how we, as Americans, tend to think about growth. And so we can stomp out racism, right? We can, we can recover the economy. We can, we can eradicate this virus. And I think if there's anything that we've learned in the past year as Americans, and it's been at the heart of a lot of conflict for us, is the fact is that we're actually not as powerful and strong and sophisticated and in control as we'd like to believe. We, in many ways, have been defeated as Americans on so many fronts. In the light of this pandemic, in the light of conversations about race, <laughs> defeat after defeat, and yet we st- our response is simply to throw more money, more, you know, uh, bigger, faster, stronger thinking to it. So this is our way of, I don't know, sort of the backdrop of how we think about maturity and growth and, and problem solving in our culture. But what happens when we bring this kind of thinking into the church? What happens to our vision of health and maturity when we tend to have, uh, when we think that we can manipulate and accelerate growth and maturity? See, the the Corinthians in their own ancient way were kind of a bigger, stronger, faster kind of place. When it came to spirituality, it was a kind of go big or go home kind of approach to things. They had a very high estimation of themselves and their own uh, wisdom and sophistication and, um, and just possibility. But according to Paul... It was quite the opposite. They, they were deep, the, the, all the divisions in the body were simply a sign of the fact of how immature they were. They were like spiritual babies. They were infants that couldn't chew solid food, that could only take, you know, the mother's milk. And yet they were, they, they were adults trying to survive on mother's milk and not being able to go on to solid food. And so the burden that Paul in this chapter, and really throughout the book is, but really here, is to give them a new understanding of maturity. It's to unmask the worldly vision of maturity for a cross-centered vision of maturity. Um, 
this passage is very much about the meaning of maturity and how to distinguish true and false versions of it. And, and the way that Paul does this, he uses a lot of different metaphors to describe maturity. And a lot of them have to do with his relationship to the church. But he also gives us a lot of images of what the church is. Um, that f- the first metaphor that Paul presents us is um, he's, he describes himself as a frustrated mother. His relationship to the congregation, to the body, is like a frustrated mother, right? Throughout his letters, he often will use a parental metaphor. He, he actually d- describes himself more as a mother than as a father. He does use that language of fatherhood, too. Um, in 1 Thessalonians, he talks about himself as, as, a, as like a wet nurse, as a, as a mother nursing. Uh, it's a very tender metaphor. This is in 1 Thessalonians. In Galatians, he, he describes himself as like a, a woman in labor, trying to give birth. Uh, But right here, he is the really upset mom. I can't really use the word I want. Katie said I couldn't. But uh, you know what I mean. It's like the mom of the teenager or the kid. You're like, you know, you're just, you just, you shake your head and you're just like, "Mm," you bite your lip so you don't say anything or do something. That's where Paul's at right here. He's a frustrated mother. He says, I could not feed you. I could not even address you as spiritual people, but as, as a people of the flesh, as infants, like little babies. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for, for you're not ready. You think you're mature, you think you're sophisticated, you have all the answers, you already know everything, but you're a spiritual man-child, basically, right? You're like a spiritual man-child. Worldly, fleshly, immature, self-deceived. You think you're sophisticated and wise, but you barely understand the basics of the cross. That's the reality, right? So Paul has this frustrated mother, um, and the church as, as, as youth that are sort of think they know more than they do. And the Corinthian church here is a really good example of how easy it is. Um, it's a danger for all of us to appear really spiritual and smart and successful um, and accomplished, and yet to be deeply, deeply worldly. Instead of interpreting the culture that you live in, through the, gospel, the lenses of the gospel, you actually interpret the gospel through the lenses of your culture. That's, that's, what, that's a, a sure sign of immaturity. That's what the Corinthians are doing here. Um, the gospel becomes, um, the culture of, becomes Jesified, right? It's become Jesified, but it hasn't been converted. Spirituality is like a, is like a sticker that's slapped on the surface of an object, but it's just surface level. Nothing underneath has changed. It operates just the way the world does, but you just have attached all kinds of Christian jargon and slogans to it. See, there is a way to be profoundly worldly even in your otherworldliness. It is possible to be on the outside to talk nonstop about Jesus and Christian values and yet to be profoundly worldly. And that's what Paul is identifying here. And I mean, my experience is I've, some of the most worldly people I've ever met <laughs> are some of the, the most externally spiritual. Um, this is not, though, true spirituality. It's not true maturity. It's not true growth. And Paul asks this really probing question multiple times. He says, are you not being merely human? <laughs> are you, and he uses the word human here uh, in contrast to spiritual. The word human here is psychikos. It's the word we get psyche, but it's meant to use in a, in a, in a, in a natural way, just a, a natural, you're just being natural and human. 
rather than pneumaticos, spiritual, Holy Spirit-filled. And I think, you know, stepping back, when we find ourselves in the church in places of conflict or frustration, we find ourselves tempted to be very critical or dismissive, we need to ask ourselves, are we being merely human? Are we bringing merely human categories to bear on our struggles and conflicts and divisions in the community? Now, I think there, we are always prone as human beings to see ourselves as more mature than we really are. I've learned this the hard way as a pastor. Don't underestimate your immaturity. Don't underestimate your immaturity. Um, and I think this is especially hard when you get older in life. You know, you, you've, you've been able to hold a job. <laughs> you know, you accomplish a lot of things. You have a family. You've done a lot of things. And it's easy to think and to be self-deceived, to think you're you're actually further along and you're more mature than you really are. But there's all kinds of counterfeit versions of maturity that we have to be aware of. I want to just name two in particular. These are particularly prone in the life of the church. I see them a lot. Two counterfeits of maturity. The first one is what I'll call um, to confuse intellectual sophistication with maturity, with spiritual maturity. Um, Just because you know a lot about the Bible and a lot about theology and doctrine does not necessarily mean you are a mature believer. We fall for this all the time. (laughs) But the reality is, is, I mean, I'm not denigrating. I have a PhD in theology. I'm not saying (laughs) that you shouldn't learn and that this isn't really important even for, le- for leaders in the church and maturity, it's essential. But just because you know a lot about God, you can talk a lot about God, you can quote verse, you can quote theologians, does not necessarily mean you are mature. So that's one way. The second one is, is um, what I'll call the trap of vocational success. Just because you have been really successful in your life vocationally, does not mean that you are necessarily spiritually mature. Now, if that is true, it's not to say you can't be. I'm just saying that the metrics for spiritual maturity in the church, uh, being successful in the world, in business, or whatever your your field is, doesn't necessarily mean that you are a spiritually mature person. And so there's a way in which we often look at people in the world, they're very accomplished, they're, they're, they're leaders in their own right in these different places, or they're very smart, and they know a lot of Bible and theology, and we think, these are spiritually mature people. But that's not necessarily the case. There's a lot more to maturity. Paul's understanding of mat- spiritual maturity is to have the mind of Jesus Christ. The mind of Jesus Christ is revealed by the word of the cross. To be mature, to have the mind of Christ, is to think like Jesus thinks, feel like Jesus feels, act like Jesus acts. It is to have a cross-centered existence. It is to have a, a way in which the cross penetrates, not just, you know, you know the theology of the cross, but, but you actually know how to apply the cross to your heart, to your emotions, to your relationships, to your interactions, to all your goals and visions and expectations of the world that you set. It's an all-encompassing The cross lays bare and exposes many of the the futile and vain um, and, frankly, immature aspects of what growth and maturity are. And so we always have to, again, like I said last week, run it all through the cross. So that's the first thing. Uh, 
Paul talks about um, his relationship to the Corinthians as a frustrated mother and them as, as, as a child. But the second one he talks about, and, and that's a, largely a corrective. It's a corrective um, on, uh, on something that was off kilter. The second point he makes has to do is he's a dutiful farmer and the church is a field. He's a dutiful farmer along with Apollos and the church is a field. What he does here that I think is so important is he gives us a very God-centered picture of what true growth is. Uh, Look at verses 6 through 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Paulus watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So the Corinthians as a church, they're, a field, they're like a field. And Paul and Apollos and those who work in the church are, 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 are dutiful farmers that faithfully plant and water and fertilize and weed the crops. And so there, there are so many important uh, truths about being a church in this text. Um, about the meaning of growth and maturity. And I just want to highlight a couple of them for you. The, f- the first one is this, that God, God delights to use diverse personalities and means to accomplish the common work of growth. Right? Apollos and Peter and Paul, they had slightly different styles of speaking and emphases and personalities. Um, and rather than they, but they're all working to the same goal. And God just likes to use different kinds of people, different kinds of personalities, in order to grow. He delights in it. And that's a big theme of this book that we'll be able to see later on. So that's, that's one point. The other point has to do with the servant character or the stu- stewardship character of the church. Um, Paul describes himself as a servant. And the word there in the Greek is um, diakonos. It's where we get our word deacon. It's a word that Paul uses constantly about his ministry. I am a diakonos. I am a, I'm a servant. Paul's very clear. I'm an instrument. I'm a steward. This church is not about me. The church is not about um, Apollos. But it's also not about you. <laughs> That's the thing. We think, well, it's not about me. Everybody would agree. It's like, this church isn't my church. It's not about me. But it's also not about you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about, it's Christ's church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's Christ's church. This, this, this is hard. I mean, um, you know, the church doesn't belong to the pastors and the council and the leaders. It doesn't belong to those who are here from the beginning or those who came later on. And, and numerous times in my, my years, decades now, um, in the church, in the midst of conflict, and when there's conflict in the church and there's an inflection point, and people are struggling about the future or direction, I'll hear this language. And to me now, it's always a trigger, it's always a sign of danger zone thinking. People say, my church. I don't like the direction my church is heading. I no longer recognize my church. <clears throat> this is danger zone thinking. Um, I, it's, you know, I, I know it's meant well, and it, 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 what it, it shows uh, ownership and investment, and that's good. 
But I think, again, the Christian view here is you're not an owner. You're a steward. And at the end of the day, the church is not your church. It's not my church. It's Jesus's church. There's no special interest in this church aside from Jesus himself, his will and his glory. And so it seems like a subtle thing just to change how we use our, our, our sense of language, but I think it's actually really important. We are stewards. We are servants. It's not about us and our experience in the church. It's about Jesus's will and Jesus's glory. And when we are all on the same page about that, that's when it truly becomes healthy and fruitful and life-giving to all of us. That's the only way we can do that. So church and our relationship to the church is those of servants, right? It's not about us. But there's another really important piece here about growth uh, that we see from this farmer metaphor and field. We as ministers, as leaders, as parents, we, we only ever exercise indirect influence over growth. We only ever exercise indirect influence over growth. God alone is a true source of growth. We make nothing grow. <laughs> we only plant and water and fertilize and weed. We cannot manufacture or manipulate spiritual maturity without adverse consequences. We are always prone, to, I think, to forget this reality and then become very frustrated at the lack of growth or the persistence of immaturity. And we're tempted to try to manipulate and to force growth. But, but this always backfires. It always leads to, to the opposite of growth. See, friends, maturity is a fruit, not a product. Maturity is a fruit, not a product. This is a very important distinction for us as Americans who are into bigger, stronger, faster. The product, a product is the end result of a calculated and deliberate effort to transform something in the world by our innate powers, right? That, I mean, you know, that's just part of life. There's nothing bad with that necessarily, but fruit is not a product. Fruit is something that comes into existence for sure through our intentional actions, but ultimately is beyond our control. It has a life of its own. Fruit has a life of its own. Fruit exceeds our na natural cap capabilities to produce. And so when fruit comes, we can't take the credit necessarily, we, but we receive it as blessing. That's how we think about children, right? We, as parents, participated in an act in which there was a child that was conceived and born. But I think all of us know, say, you know we don't say to our kids, you know, I made you. You know, we say that maybe in joking ways, but we, it's like, we didn't make them. Like, we participated in an act that God blessed and they came about. That's fruit, right? And maturity in our life is always the, the, the manifestation of fruit. It's never a product. And so, you know, we can't make our children grow. We can't make them spiritually mature. There's no such thing as manufactured growth and maturity in the church, not in terms of conversions or deeper commitment or deeper engagement and care for, for the, the problems in our culture and our society that need to be addressed, like race, like foster care, like poverty. Because all of these things, if there's deep change that's going to happen, presumes transformed hearts, transformed understanding of God, an understanding of what neighbor love is. We need to, I think, check our frustrations and always 
you know, be cautious when we, we think about and get frustrated by the lack of growth in our lives personally, and it's true for you, for all of us, like, you can't even act directly on your own growth. <laughs> it's always indirect. At the end of the day, it's God who brings the growth. And I think what this, the posture should create in us is just this deep humility and patience for the Lord. I mean, if you're a farmer, like, you have to be patient, and you realize there's so much outside of your control, and you pray that God turns our hearts towards Him more fully. So that, that's, that's really important. So um, Paul is not suggesting we're not, that we're powerless or passive. No, we must plant, we must water, we must weed and fertilize. You know that the work of being a farmer is really, really hard work. It's hard, it hardly is it a passive thing. But we can't expect growth and maturity if we don't take responsibility for the very ordinary tasks. And I think this is really important in a culture of bigger, stronger, faster. Um, the reality is, is that we can't make any of the things that we want to see change happen just by fiat, just by more willpower, just by throwing more money or power or intelligence at it. God has to bring the growth. And yet God has given us kind of like the, the tools for cultivation, the tools for farming. And this is what we mean by the ordinary means of grace. When we fail to understand um, the ordinary means of grace, that's when we're tempted to turn to all kinds of sort of... Um, unnatural kinds of remedies to address the problem. But the ordinary means of grace are the word, the sacrament, prayer, catechesis, life together, common worship in a regular way. These are the more, these are the ordinary means of grace. They're not the extraordinary means of grace. There is no such thing as extraordinary means of grace. They're all ordinary. They do their work. They're boring. They're like, man, we're doing this again? Yeah. I mean, if you, if you want to continue living, you have to eat every day. It's an ordinary means, right? You can't binge, like, all your meals at the beginning of the month and then be fine. To, you're, not a, you're not a python. Like, you can't do that. You need to eat every day, multiple times during the day. It's ordinary. And that's part of the Christian life, though. It's just ordinary means. It's a regular prayer, regular time in God's Word, coming to the table, showing up and being part of the community. Those are the ordinary means of grace. Okay, so Paul uses the image of a frustrated mother in the church as, as, a, as a growing child, to put it in more positive terms. Um, Paul as a, as a dutiful farmer in the church as a field. And then finally, and I'll, I'll try to be a little bit briefer on this one, Paul as a sophisticated builder. Paul is a sophisticated builder in the church as a building. According to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid on Jesus Christ. In the same sentence that he describes the Corinthians as God's field, he describes them also as a building. And his primary interest here has to do with the, the way the metaphor works is for him to address this question of foundations. Um, real maturity depends upon having the right foundations. Building upon the right foundation. And a building is no better than the foundation upon which it's built. And Paul's concern here is that the Corinthians stay true to the original foundation which he gave them, which is Christ crucified. And not to try to build as if they're building on an alternative foundation. Right? That's, that's the problem here. He gave them a good foundation, him and Apollos and, and Peter, and yet they're building 
a different kind of building. And I think the question for all of us here is what, what are we building our lives upon? What is our foundation? He uses this word sophos to describe himself, and it's the word wise, right? And he's clearly being an ironic because this was the language that the Corinthians used about themselves as sophos. They were the wise ones. And the Corinthians, what they're doing is they're charging Paul with being unsophisticated and simplistic and lacking wisdom. And Paul says, quite to the contrary, the world counts as foolishness and unsophistication the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God is a cross. The word of the cross is like a stick in the spokes of the wheel of the culture of our world of bigger, faster, and stronger. The cross is like, you know, you stick, you stick a stick in a bike as it's going, and it's just going to do like this. And that's what, that's, what the, that's what the cross is. It's a stick in the spokes of the wheel that causes the bike to stumble over and fall. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is our curriculum. From birth to to the grave, the cross is our curriculum. It is our method. It is our way of seeing the world. It is the source of our righteousness, of our wisdom, of our sanctification, of our redemption. Real maturity is growth into the reality of the cross and resurrection. You know, when we think about the world, we think in terms of cause and effect. We observe the world and we see if you do this, we do X, then Y results, right? And so we, this is, I mean, this is a very normal, good way of thinking about the world. Cause and effect is really important. But in the Christian economy, the paradox of the cross is the way the world works is not cause and effect. It's cross and resurrection. It's not, ca- it's not cause and effect. It's cross and resurrection. You look at the cross, what do you see? You see death. <laughs> you see death. You see rejection. You see failure. And if you have the cause and effect scheme, looking at the cross, you're not going to see resurrection on the other side. But the wisdom of the cross says, no, the world works for the Christian according to not cause and effect, but cross and resurrection. The cross is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. And to approach and to embrace the cross is not to embrace failure or defeat, but quite the opposite. It is to learn what it means to come to possess the world. It's a remarkable statement that I really don't have time to to draw out. But Paul is saying at the end, actually, we possess the whole world because of the cross. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God. Brothers and sisters, the way we conquer the world (laughs) is through the cross. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you have laid the foundation of the cross upon our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would learn as your people to build in line with that blueprint which is a very different way of being in the world and thinking um, than the one that we um, live and move in in this this culture. We do pray for um, a common vision and unity around the cross as your people. Help us, Lord, as we have struggled in the past couple years with our own particular (laughs) divisions, 
Help us, Lord, to, um, to bear the cross deep in our hearts, to be changed and reformatted, and to be merciful and loving towards one another. Lord, we do pray. Unify us by your Spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.